Inside the scarred up heart Inside a raging storm The word is angered Cause Satan has declared a war I'll fight this battle, Lord Because you're worth fighting for I pledge my undying love to you Well, friends, June has finally got here. This is our June 2016 CD, and we are excited about our three-fold chord conference coming up June 24th, 25th, and 26th. You don't want to miss it this year. James Payne's going to be here. Richard Koss, Terry Hopkins, Jim and Ann Davenport, Bill Shell, Sherman Taylor, Joe Arview, Melanie Walker, and, of course, Tony Mack. McMullen. Tony will be here. He's going to be our MC again this year, and it's going to be an awesome three-day conference right here at Rig Ministry. So make plans to be here. This month's CD is a special CD, and what a powerful testimony it is. It's the testimony of Don Piper. You may have read his book, 90 Minutes in Heaven, or seen the movie. Now they have a movie called 90 Minutes in Heaven. It's a life story of Don Piper. We've got that for you on CD today. So you sit back, listen, enjoy this message, and then we look forward to seeing you right here at Rig Ministries, June 24th, 25th, and 26th. It was by your stripes that I was healed For this mighty army you will build battle, Lord, cause you're worth fighting for. I pledge my undying love to you. You died for me, though I led such a shameful life. Grace has set me free, so I'm honored to struggle. I'm going to share a testimony with you tonight. I, I like testimonies, and um, I think we ought to share them more than we do. If you are a follower of Jesus, you have a testimony. And uh, your story may be different from mine. I, I hope actually it is. Um, but I would say this to you. People need to hear from you about that. And uh, so I, I'm kind of doing this, and I have been doing it for years, uh, with, a, with the idea that I want to motivate you to share your story. Because this is really where people are reached. I mean, we're going to have church in the morning and uh, in and around this area. And I suggest you go. Um, I don't know if you know this, but they have church every week. Um, and um, if, if, you, if, you, if you're living, <laughs> you need a church family. Everybody needs one, really. I don't know how we could function in the 21st century without one. So I encourage you to be a part of a church family. And here's one here. There are many represented here tonight, and I praise God for all of them. But um, your testimony, personal, is very, very important in the world in which we live. Because we're there. We're not at church. 
And I think that's why it's important to do this. My testimony is based on uh, this book, 90 Minutes in Heaven. It's a story I wrote, or a book I wrote, so I would never have to talk about it. Um, (laughs) This has not gone well. Uh, This book is in uh, 46 languages and has sold 8 million copies. So sometimes you try to put, well... That's, that's a God thing, trust me. Um, I thought they'd be using it for skeet shooting and doorstops. But it, it, it um, I tried to put something behind me and God put it in front of me. You know what I'm saying? Sometimes you want to get over something. You want to get past something. And that is the very thing that God ends up using. So this, uh, this is that book. Uh, this cover is, is different from any cover you've probably seen before. Because when we made the movie, uh, they wanted to do a special movie edition of the book. The old book is in here, but it has a lot of additional stuff in it about the movie and a lot of additional scripture verses in the back and stories about heaven. There's even a chapter in here on uh, letters I got from Iraq and Afghanistan to service people who are serving over there. So um, I, I haven't gotten over my life being for sale at Walmart. Now uh, it's a movie and... Um, it's very strange to see people being you on a screen. You know, we live this. Uh, what people probably would have trouble understanding is that the five of us, my wife and our three children, we were in our own worlds during all this time because the kids were being taken care of. My wife was doing what she had to do and I was hospitalized. Seeing the movie gave us an opportunity to see our lives at the same time in one room together. <laughs> So it was very difficult for us to watch this movie. It still is, to be honest with you. But it is out now, and it's uh, available in DVD and Blu-ray. Once again, you can buy it at uh, most stores and order it on most of the online platforms. It's even, you can even get on Netflix and all those things and rent the movie. So uh, it stars a young man named Hayden Christensen. Hayden Christensen is best known for um, his portrayal of... Uh, the character Anakin Skywalker in all the Star Wars movies, very popular series of movies. Uh, he eventually becomes a character called Darth Vader. So my kids have started calling me Darth Preacher. And uh, <laughs> not sure about that, but uh, Kate Bosworth uh, plays my wife, Eva. Kate is a very, very beautiful actress. Um, she's best known for Remember the Titans and Superman Returns and a lot of other movies. Um, Dwight Yoakam is in the movie. Uh, Michael W. Smith, if you've followed Christian music for the past 30 or 40 years, he, is, he and his son not only wrote the music for the movie, they, uh, uh, Michael W. Smith, Smith has a very prominent part in the movie. He plays a good friend of mine in the movie and a wonderful person. And then the, Senator Fred Thompson is in the movie, plays my mentor. Uh, an old retired pastor. Uh, This was Fred's last movie. Uh, Fred passed away um, uh, right after the movie was released, actually. The movie was released in September of last year, and he passed shortly thereafter. Very famous actor. And the real deal. If you got to meet him, he was the real deal. So I miss Fred already, but uh, I know where he is. So that's the movie. Here's what happened. I was on my way to church when I got killed in a car wreck. This is in East Texas. It's right above a lake there in East Texas, a very large recreational lake called Lake Livingston. And I was there for a pastor's conference for three days. Started on a Monday, finished on a Wednesday. 
So uh, we had a great time at the conference learning how to start churches, how to grow churches. Uh, a lot of other pastors that were there. And uh, so on Wednesday morning, we dismissed and we're headed back to our respective churches all over the state of Texas. Some of us had quite a ways to go because it's a long way across Texas. 900 miles this way and 900 miles this way. So some of these guys were trying to get out of there pretty quickly. I only had to go 130 miles. My church was south of Houston in a small town called Alvin. So 130 miles. That was raining and cold that day. Kind of a miserable day, really, uh, for travel. But we were on our way to church, so that's the focus. I, I got in my car. I, I had sermons on the seat beside me. I was going to start a new sermon series in my church the next Sunday morning called This I Believe. And it was a doctrinal series on what we believe. First sermon on the top was called I Believe in a Great God. The sermon under that was called I Believe in Jesus, the Son of God. Next one was I Believe in the Holy Spirit. The next one was I Believe in the Fellowship of uh, the Communion. I Believe in Baptism. This is where I was going with this, this series of sermons to start a new year. I never did preach any of those sermons in my church. I actually only have a copy of one of the manuscripts left. If you've seen the movie, you saw the state policeman picking it up off the bridge uh, as it had uh, blown, blown out of the car. It is that sermon, I believe in a great God. I have it home in my office to this day because he saved it for us. It's called, I believe in a great God. It is covered in my dried blood. Well, well, I'm driving across the bridge. It's a very narrow bridge. You can see it has an old metal superstructure over the top of it. Kind of looks like a railway trestle, but it's not. People fish off of it nowadays, but that day I was driving across it. At the very end of the bridge, the highway takes a steep embankment up. Coming down that embankment at a very high rate of speed is a tractor-trailer truck, an 18-wheeler. I'm almost off the bridge. Now remember, I'm on my way to church. I, I'm thinking about the sermons. I'm thinking about the Bible study. I'm going to lead that Wednesday night. Right before I exited the end of the bridge... The 18-wheeler swerved to miss a car that had pulled out in front of him, came over to my lane, and hit me head on. The nine wheels on the driver's side of the truck rolled over the top of my car, crushed me in it, went off the back, struck two more vehicles, and finally brought the rig to a halt near this end of the bridge. So it's a four-vehicle collision on the Trinity River Bridge. It's an awful wreck. Miraculously, no one else is hurt in the wreck. The truck driver isn't hurt. The drivers aren't hurt. The other two cars, their vehicles are all total, but they escaped serious injuries. Well, ambulances are coming from every direction. It's a very rural, remote area. It took a long time for them to arrive. They did arrive, and they started working the accident. The paramedics worked on me. They did everything they could. They probably tried things they never tried before because there was nothing to lose except my life. And in spite of their best efforts, they um, were unsuccessful. In restoring my life, I was pronounced dead on the scene by four paramedics, which I think brings up an interesting question. What am I doing in Carmi? <laughs> Guess what? I'm going to ask you the same question. What are you doing here that matters? I mean, you know where you are in your life right now. What do you have to show for it up to this point? Put a bookmark in that. We'll come back to it, I promise. So the body's covered up. You can see it. Traffic starts backing up for miles in both directions. Behind me are all those preachers. 
Uh, so, you know, some of them were ahead of me, but most of them were behind me. And they start walking up to the bridge to find out what's going on. Why are we stopped? One of those preachers, a pastor in uh, Houston, uh, his name was Dick Onorecker. And, uh, and obviously we became very, very good friends, but I did not know him. I heard him speak at the conference, but I did not meet him. He and his wife, Anita, walk up to the bridge. They see all this. And Dick Honorecker says to one of those policemen, Officer, my name is Dick Honorecker. I'm a pastor in Houston. I see there's been a horrible wreck here. I would like to pray for the victims. And the policeman said, well, that's a wonderful thing, but there's no one to pray for, really. Everyone else is okay except the man in the red car. He's dead. That would have been me. So there's no one to pray for. But when the policeman said that, God spoke to that pastor, which we've decided is a good thing. You know, don't you want to, uh, don't you want a pastor that God speaks to? And I, you know, we're trying to be one, but let me say this. I think God is doing a lot more speaking than we are listening. All of us. But he was speaking on the bridge that day. And this pastor is listening when God says, pray for the man in the red car. Well, that wasn't part of his theology. He never thought about praying for somebody who was dead, but he knew God was speaking to him. So he did the thing that God is always interested in. Dick Honorecker was obedient. If he only did things we understood, we probably wouldn't do very much. Faith is what God is looking for. So by faith, he gets permission to get in the car. Well, that's pretty treacherous. So Dick's behind me in the car because it's the only direction he could come from. He lifted up the tarp because God told him to pray for me. He looks at my body and he decides through his examination that the only thing I didn't break was my right arm. This is the only thing I did not break in the accident. So he puts his hand on my right shoulder from behind in the back of the, really the trunk of the car. And he is praying for me because God told him to. He's not the only one praying by this time. Well, I mean, they did find my identification and they wanted to know who I was. So when they found the ID, they called my home in Alvin. Well, nobody was there. My wife was teaching school. My wife taught school for 34 years. She taught elementary school. And like I said, she's the hero of the story because after the accident, she continued to teach school because we had to have some insurance to pay for the $6 million it cost to put me back together again. She took care of our three kids or made sure that they were taken care of. She's a hero because she did all that stuff and she balanced the checkbook and empty bedpans. Now that's a hero. So I'm a survivor of the accident. She is a hero of the accident. Eva, who was supposed to be beside me in that car, but decided Sunday night before I left on Monday morning not to go because she had some new students in her classroom and she didn't want those new students to have a substitute teacher. She would have been in the car with me that day. Thank God she wasn't. Since they couldn't reach her, they found my business card in the wallet, South Park Church in Alvin. They called that church and they told the church that I was in a terrible accident, but not that I was dead because they don't notify that on the phone if they can keep from it. So all the church knows is I've been in a terrible accident and they did the only thing they could think of at that point. They launched into a massive prayer meeting. And someone says, let's get the Houston phone book out and start calling people in the phone book and asking them to pray for our pastor. Well, everybody they called, I mean, they started with Antioch United Methodist and they finished with Zion Lutheran. They didn't leave any churches out. Every church they called said, yes, we'll pray for him. We'll be honored to do that. 
So all these people start praying and they start calling other churches. It starts spreading out all across the country, right here through Illinois, coast to coast. I was speaking in Modesto, California early last year and I got through speaking and I was signing books and a guy walks up to me who's crying. Well, there's a lot of crying at my book table, but this guy's really crying. And he, he, he extends his hands and he says, his first words were, I prayed for you that day. 27 years later, I said, yes, sir. Uh, well, it worked. And he said, no, you don't understand. I was in Taipei, Taiwan, when I got the word. So people really were praying for me all over the world. The people who don't even know me, they were praying. This goes on for an hour and a half. The reason we know this is because the accident happened at 1145 on the bridge. We have the traffic, we have the police report. 1145 on the bridge. It's 1.15 in the afternoon. They've been waiting for the medical examiner to show up on the bridge to sign the appropriate paperwork to take this way. They have to do an investigation. It's fatality. They have to investigate that. So everything's at a standstill. Well, Dick Onorecker's under the tarp, and he has now started to sing hymns, which are just prayers put to music. We already said, you know, we just sang some. When we all get to heaven, that's a prayer put to music. He's singing this old hymn. What a friend we have in Jesus. This is an awesome tune. It's about 150 years old. It has an amazing story behind it. It was actually written by a pastor to his mother back in Ireland. What a friend we have in Jesus. Dick Onorecker singing that song over my dead body holding onto my right shoulder an hour and a half after the truck ran over me and killed me. And suddenly without any warning under that tarp in the dark, I started singing the song with him. And he got out of the car really fast. <laughs> wouldn't, wouldn't you? He went over to the policeman and said, Officer, the dead man is singing. And nobody believed that. It, was, it is unbelievable. Truly unbelievable. 90 minutes after being killed. But it was true, but they didn't believe him. They thought maybe it was just his imagination, maybe wishful thinking on his part. So he had to convince them to do it. And that took some doing. Finally, he kind of convinced them to come over and at least humor him. When they did, they found out I was alive. Not very, but I was alive. So then they had to get me out of there. Then the equipment was brought out from 30 miles away. Then the car starts being dismantled. This next picture is the real car at the wrecking yard after it was hauled off the bridge. You can see the trajectory of the truck as it ran over the top of the car, crushing me in it. I had brain damage. My wife still thinks I have brain damage. No, this works out well sometimes. It really does. And um, I tell people before the accident, I was a genius. And this is all I have left now. I was impaled on the steering wheel. This is before airbags. So the steering wheel just went horizontal and went right into my chest. So I had massive internal injuries. The dashboard collapsed on both of my legs when the truck ran up over the hood. And it just, it was just like a guillotine. It just crushed my right leg at the knee and severed my left leg about an inch above the left knee. It just exploded that leg and four and a half inches of femur, the largest bone in the human body, was ejected from the car over the railing and never found. I put my arm up when the truck was coming for me, apparently, because that's where it was. That's the moment the truck ran over me and it took my arm, left arm into the back seat of the car and from here forward was lying on the back seat of the car. So it was a hideous uh, thing to see, I'm sure. They did the best they could to get me out of there. 
Uh, they saw the roof off and they got me out of there as close to one piece as possible. And then they took me to a series of hospitals. You know, say, hospitals? Yeah, they were trying to find a place that could help me. So, Dick's praying over my shoulder and very emotionally singing, what a friend we have in Jesus. They took me to a hospital that, near there that couldn't help me, Trinity. Then I went to a, a regional hospital in Huntsville. There they did stabilize me. They knew I was going to have to be in a level one trauma center with all deliberate speed. The nearest one was 85 miles away in Houston where I was headed in the first place. But the weather was too bad for helicopters to fly that day. They couldn't take off and land in that kind of weather. So I found myself in the back of an ambulance being transported to Houston, Texas, Memorial Hermann Hospital, a world famous hospital. When Congresswoman Giffords was shot in Arizona, this is the hospital they took her to. So they're trying to get me there. And... Um, it's a, it's, it's a terrible experience. And it was in the back of that ambulance on the way to Houston, 85 miles, weaving in and out of traffic, the siren blaring, that all of this came into focus for me. I knew I'd been in a wreck. I fortunately don't remember the wreck. But no matter how much medication they gave me, I, I was feeling pain that I did not know was humanly possible to endure. Um, I had so many broken bones and open gaping wounds. Every time my heart would beat, it would be like hitting those places with a hammer. I said to the young EMT who was taking care of me, I'm on my back, he's looking down at me. Sir, is there any way you can give me something for pain, please? It's unbearable. Through my oxygen mask. He looked down at me and said, no, Mr. Piper, I'm sorry, I can't give you anything else for pain. If I give you anything else for pain, you'll probably just pass out. Um... <laughs> kind of what I'm shooting for I'd like to pass out. <laughs> you just want to ever be unconscious sometime? Well, I did. He was following instructions the doctors in Houston had told him to keep me awake at all times. They were afraid if I lost consciousness again, he would never be able to get me back. So we drove along a little further. I kept hearing horrible screams in the ambulance. I mean horrible screams, blood-curdling screams. This time I looked at my, my mask and I said, I'm really sorry to bother you again, but is there any way you can make that screaming stop? It's very scary and disturbing to me. This time he wheeled around on his little stool there and got right down close to my face because it was very loud. He put his hand on my shoulder, the only thing I didn't break, and this young man with tears in his eyes said to me, Mr. Piper, I'm sorry to tell you this, but beside the driver and me, there isn't anyone else in this ambulance. Sir, you are screaming. I was a 38-year-old preacher, husband, father of three children, on my way to lead a Wednesday night Bible study in my church. Now I'm in the back of an ambulance, screaming down Interstate 45 on the way to Houston, and I was screaming. I don't think I've ever been more scared in my life, because I knew from then on I was never going to be the same again. That accident happened at 11.45 on the bridge. We arrived at Memorial Hermann Hospital at 6.15 that night, six and a half hours after the wreck. And I would be in the hospital bed for 13 months, and I would have 34 major surgeries to put me back together again. So here's a couple of things we could take with us tonight. I mean, like urgent, 
important things that really we can take with us. Number one, I believe that God answers prayer. And number two, I believe God is still in the miracle business today. I may not look like much, but I am both of those things. I didn't have anything to do with my survival whatsoever. If I had a choice, I would have stayed there and not come back here. But people were praying and God said yes. And even though I I was told on many occasions I would never walk again, or if they were able to reattach this arm, it would just hang by my side for the rest of my life. I did walk up here after Randy introduced me on my own two legs, and this is the arm that was in the back seat. So I believe in miracles. I think God's doing some of his best stuff today. Right before Jesus died, I think it's important for us to understand that he died too. He knows what it's like. He experienced it. Just a couple of weeks ago, we celebrated, we commemorated Easter, the resurrection. You know, Easter was Jesus' way of showing us what happens next. Do you ever think about it like that? Because you notice he didn't stay dead. Yeah, he was showing us what happens next. I love it when the thief turns to Jesus and says, Jesus, no one else called him that. Everybody else called him teacher, rabbi. But this man called him Jesus because he knew who he was. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Well, he's saying all he needed to say to be remembered. I know who you are. I know what you're doing. And you're the king of kings. And I remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus turns to him and says this word. You know, in Houston, where I live, we're kind of proud of the fact that the first word ever said from another entity out in space was, Houston, the eagle has landed. Well, how about this word? Today. You will be with me in paradise. Today. So that's how instantaneous it is. Today. Because they were both dying right right then. I mean, Jesus died before they even had a chance to break his legs. This man didn't. He had his legs broken. So he couldn't lift himself up and breathe anymore. It was getting towards the Sabbath. They had to kill them. So, today, you will be with me in paradise. Just a little while before this, Jesus had gathered his followers in the upper room. If you go to Jerusalem, the upper room is located right above David's tomb, King David's tomb. What an amazing juxtaposition. David's tomb, you can't go in there without wearing a a yarmulke or something over your head. The men and women have to go into separate entrances. Just above that is the upper room where Jesus was with his followers for what we now refer to as the Last Supper. All of us are going to have one of those one of these days. We probably won't know when it is, but we'll have one. Jesus is having his. And they're around that table that they got around every year because they had this ongoing commemoration of Passover. They passed the elements around. Things started off great in Jerusalem. I mean, Jesus comes in triumphantly. They're singing his praises. He's uh, not even having to walk. He's riding. I mean, it was just an incredible celebration and reception. Now things are not going well because he's said a lot of things and done a lot of things that upset the local authorities. And so now they want to kill him. And his followers know this. So they're not just passing around the elements of the Last Supper. They're worried. As far as we know, all of them except one was eventually executed himself. So they had reason to worry. 
Jesus knows this. Of course, he knows everything. So he's looking at these fellows' eyes that he spent three and a half years with. And he has some words of encouragement for them because they didn't come in feeling very well. And maybe some of you didn't either. This is a large crowd. Some of you came with some questions. Some of you came with some concerns because in many ways things are not going very well for you. Here's some words for you from Jesus right before he's executed. John chapter 14. Let not your hearts be troubled. Do you believe in God? Then believe in me also. In my Father's house are many mansions or rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, you will be also. And you know where I'm going, and you know how to get there. If you read the Synoptic Gospels, if you read Acts, you'll find out that Jesus had been setting this, them up for this all along. This isn't a surprise revelation here. He's been telling them that he doesn't get to stay. He's been telling them that he's, he's going to heaven. That's where he came from, and he's going back home. He's been telling them all these things, but they haven't been listening. It's kind of like being in church. <laughs> and we know this because Thomas, Thomas is so us. Thomas stands up at the dinner table and says, we don't know where you're going, and we don't know how to get there. Well, those are good questions, like where's heaven? But the even more question is, important question is, how do we get to heaven? And maybe you walked in tonight, and that would be your number one question. Okay, assuming there is a heaven, how do I get there? I would like to go there, because it's got to be better than this. You're right. It is better than this. So how do you get there? Jesus answered the question very simply. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. So I have to say to you, with all the love I have in my heart, if you're counting on something else to get you to heaven, it's not going to work. Jesus is the way. He concluded that by saying, no man comes to the Father except through me. You're looking for truth? Jesus is the truth. You're looking for a better life than the one you're living, an eternal life someday? He is the life. The way, the truth, and the life. I found this out on my way to church when I got run over by a big truck. I believed it. I preached it. But now, I'm experiencing it. So there I was in a hospital bed uh, for 13 months. People would come to see me. Adults would walk in the room and pass out when they saw me. It was a hideous thing to see because of what they had to do to try to sustain my life. This next picture is, uh, well, you can see what Jesus says in that same verse. John chapter 14, a little further down, he makes this statement because he knew they would need this. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. That's prayer. Well, you say, wait a, minute, wait a minute, Don, I have asked God for stuff, and I even said in Jesus' name at the end of the prayer, and as far as I know, I didn't get a thing. What's going on there? I think that's a good question. And we probably all ask it at one time or another. When I was a kid, before I became a, a, a Christian, I used to go down to the convenience store, and they had a bicycle down there. They were giving away. I prayed for that bicycle every night. I wanted that bicycle. You should see what I was riding 
It was an old rattle trap thing I put together from spare parts. I wanted that red new Schwinn bicycle. You know what? I didn't get it, even though I prayed for it. I remember even how I prayed. I, every night I would say, I hope I wish I pray. I hope I wish I pray that I get that bicycle. I didn't get it. Well, wait a minute. The Bible says you can ask me for anything in my name. Well, that's the problem. In my name means it coincides with the will of God. It's not just something you tack on at the end of a prayer. But I assure you, God the Father wants to hear from his children. Like any parent would. He wants to hear from us. That's actually why we're here. We were created for fellowship with God. So when's the last time you talked to him? I mean, really talk to him. Like, not just a laundry list of, I want the Schwinn bicycle. I mean, it's not, I mean, just had a conversation with God the Father. Well, my father is in the room. Now, I've developed double pneumonia. I'm actually in grave condition. They don't think I'm going to move through the night, live through the night. So they decide to put on me a new kind of technology that had never been applied in this country. It was only patented three weeks before my accident. It had to be flown from Atlanta, Georgia, for them to even install the thing. It's a bone-stretching device. Since I was missing four and a half inches of my femur, they put these stainless steel halos around me with wires and rods going through the leg and coming out the other side. There's no, bones are not connected. They're missing four and a half inches. So they broke my leg in another place. Then they turned screws on these halos four times a day to try to stretch the bones inside to close the gap where the bone is missing. I wore it for a year, 30 open wounds in my leg. It was a nightmare. On my arm, they could actually transplant bones there since there weren't any bones left in that part of the arm. They took them from my pelvis. They harvested bones from my hip. They put them in my arm. All the skin on this arm came from my right leg. Medical people have a wonderful knack for, for hurting things you didn't even hurt to fix the other stuff. So, now remember the other leg's broken too. So this is kind of what I looked like for months. Like I said, grown people would walk in and just kind of back out the door. My mother came in one time, she passed out, she never came in again. She would look at me through the door or the window. My dad, though, was a career army man. My dad served in World War II, Korea, and Vietnam. Fought in all those wars. He had a chest full of medals to show for it. He was, during part of his career, a DI. If any of you have a military background, you know what a DI does. I had one for a dad. I thought he had me so I could polish his boots and brass, and I polished a bunch of them. So he was one tough character, Master Sergeant Ralph Piper from Illinois. He would come and see me, 250 miles one way just to come and see me, sometimes twice, three times a week. I'm lying there in the bed like I did every day, all day, for years. <laughs> I had two years of rehab after this. So my dad's sitting there and silent in the room for a while. He gets up and he walks around the other side. The old drill sergeant picks up my hand with his old arthritic hand and leans down and my father says this into my ear, the old drill sergeant. Son, I would give anything to trade places with you. My dad. I was a 38-year-old man, but as far as he was concerned, I was a little boy. He hated to see me hurt like this. I am a father and grandfather. I understand. I did get better. 
and he got worse. All those wars caught up with him. Congestive heart failure, emphysema, Agent Orange. And a few years later, I found myself going 250 miles the other way to sit at the foot of his bed. Hospital, assisted living, hospice. My mother was standing beside him. Every time I ever went, she never left his side. They were married for 61 years. When we would finish visiting, and I would hold my dad's hand, the old wrinkled hand, instead of weighing 190 pounds like he did in these days, he weighed 100 pounds. He was curled up in the fetal position. He was always strong for me, though. I would walk out in the hall, my mother would follow me, and she'd say, son... The doctors try to make him feel comfortable. They try to give him things to make him feel better. But nothing makes him feel better than when one of his children comes to talk to him. I think God the Father wants to hear from his children. So when's the last time you really talked to him? Let me ask you a question, Illinois. What would happen if you decided to pray for people who are not ready to go to heaven with the kind of passion Dick record did over my dead body. I'll tell you what would happen. You don't have enough gray chairs. This town would go crazy. People would hear all over the world, have you heard what's happening in southern Illinois? I mean, have you heard what's happening? They have a revival going on there. Everybody's praying for everybody else. They're praying for people who are not ready to go to heaven. And it's just, it's just unbelievable. You should see it. But if you'd like to see that happen, it's going to start with prayer. Every time. Hey, you know people that you, that you work with, that live down your street, that you're related to. They're friends of yours that you go to school with that are not ready to go to heaven. When's the last time you prayed for them? I know it works. I am an answered prayer. I'm only here because a lot of people prayed and God said yes. He doesn't always say yes. Sometimes he says no. Sometimes he says later. But he's faithful to hear and respond to our prayers. I believe in prayer. I am one. And I'm encouraging you to talk to your father. He wants to hear from you. I had a lot of miraculous things happen to me, obviously. Look at that. I mean, how does anybody recover from that? You can imagine how many infections I had from all those open, gaping wounds. I had many. Often I would be in an isolation room for three weeks at a time where no one could even see me except to look through a window. The medical people had to dress head to toe to come in where I was. I, I, really, I really was, you know, the people didn't believe that I would ever recover from that. But I didn't walk in here tonight. When I'm finished, I'm walking out. So I believe in miracles. There's a verse in that same chapter of John's gospel where he starts about saying, let not your hearts be troubled. You may ask me for anything in my name. And this is that verse from John chapter 14. It's the verse about miracles. If you can skip down to it. He says this. After I leave here, Anyone who has faith in me will be doing what I'm doing and do even greater things than these. Can you imagine that? The key word in here, of course, is anything. You may ask me for anything. But in that verse, John chapter 14, he says this. Anyone who has faith in me 
will do what I've been doing and will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. Now let's wrap our brains around that. I mean, we, we know Jesus turned water into wine. He gave sight to the blind. He made the lame walk. He was standing outside the tomb and said, Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus comes waltzing out of the tomb. All these guys see this. They're now sitting at the dinner table. And he's telling them, he's been with them three and a half years. Now listen to this. He's telling them that after I leave here, you're going to do greater things than I have done already. And the word anyone means anyone. That means us. And what he's saying is that after I leave here, even greater things are going to happen. Even greater things. A lady walked up with a copy of this book the other day. She was holding it like this. Really close to her. She was at a book table in church. She leans over and here are her first words to me. You sent me this book in jail. I said, ma'am, we sent a lot of books to jail. It's the only way they can get them in prisons. You can't take them. You have to send them. It comes to go directly from the author to the person who's incarcerated. When they ask for them, we send them. We don't ask any questions. Well, you sent it to me. I was in jail. In my, I'm in my 60s. I was in jail for my sixth driving while intoxicated. I didn't have any community service. I didn't have any probation. I had nothing. They put me in jail. I'd never been in jail in my life, she said. Well, I was in there with a bunch of other women, and they all had sad stories, too. I finally said to this woman, how in the world do you get through a day in here? She said, it's very hard. She said, but you just have to, you just have to get used to it, and you have, to, you have to hang on. She said, I read a book that really helped me. Really? What was the name of it? It's 90 minutes in heaven. It's about this guy that was in a horrible, horrible accident. And he knew he was never going to be the same. So he had to figure out how to get through this, even though he wasn't going to be the same again. You should read this book. Where is it? We don't have it in here. Maybe you can get online or something and ask for it. I did. And you sent it to me, Mr. Piper. I read your book in jail. And I've come here tonight to ask you to pray for me. Because I'm on parole now, but pray for me because two weeks from the day in this church where we're standing, I'm going to start leading a support group for alcoholics and addicts called Celebrate Recovery. Would you pray for me? I said, ma'am, who better than you? I know about you, but I think that's a miracle. I mean, she was so, she was so low. You know, there's only one good thing that happened when you hit the bottom, and that's to push off. She decided to do that. And now she was standing in front of me saying, I'm going to start teaching people who have the same problem I did. Alcohol, and in some cases drugs, I'm going to help them overcome it because I get it. See, I think you can do that. And I think that's a miracle. I think God's doing some of his best stuff today. I already mentioned that Dick Onorek and his wife were only behind me that morning because they stopped to get a cup of coffee because she was cold. I drove past them. They fell in behind me. The reason they were behind me instead of in front of me to be the accident was that cup of coffee, which they gave to one of the other accident victims. So that's how much my life is worth, a cup of coffee. Of course, if it's Starbucks, that's like eight or nine dollars, but it's... <laughs> Jesus figured it was worth more. So I believe in miracles. I think God's doing some of his best stuff now. I had a tough time getting through this. Uh, I was a 38-year-old man who couldn't do one single solitary thing for himself at all. Use your imagination.
One morning at 3 a.m. in that hospital bed, I hit the bottom. I'd hit the bottom. I, must, I was tired of it. I was sick and tired of being sick and tired. Nobody could give me any positive information because they didn't have any. They weren't sure. They want to hedge their bets. So one morning I found myself doing this. If you're not looking up here, I just ask you to do it for a second or two so you can see what I'm going to do. I'm in the bed. I only got one thing that works. It's my right arm. And this is what I'm doing with it. I don't understand why this happened to me. I was on my way to church. I wasn't doing anything wrong. Can't you send somebody here who understands what this is like? If I could just talk to somebody who gets it, I think I would be okay. Everyone's nice to me. They're praying for me. But nobody understands what it's like to wear this thing. I'm listening to some music beside the bed. Very familiar Christian music. And God speaks to me through the music. He often does. And here's what he said to me while I'm laying in the hospital bed. This is not about you. This is about me. And what I can do through you now, I can never do before the truck hits you. You need to get over your pity party, son. And you need to turn your test into a testimony. You need to take your mess and make a message that's going to bless someone else. You need to take the pain and find a purpose. And the disappointment and look for divine appointments. Instead of shaking your fist at me, you need to take the very same hand and reach out to other people and say, I understand how you feel. Let me help you get through this. Do you see the difference between this? I lost my daughter. I lost my house. I went bankrupt. Uh, the divorce became final. The fire came. The tornado came. All the times that we want to shake our fist at God and said, why did you do this to me? Why did you even allow this to happen? And God says, instead of shaking your fist at me, on this brief little life that we have here on the planet, take your hand and reach out to other people and say, I've been through this. Let me help you get through it. Together, we'll get through it. I call that finding a new normal. I made it my life's work. man came up to me the other day and said, my wife died. We've been married 32 years. I'm lost. I don't know where anything is. I don't know how, what to do with myself. I, I, why did he take her and leave me? She was the good one. Why did he leave me here alone? Understand that. I've heard it many times. I said, sir, was your wife a follower of Jesus? Oh, yes. She was very devoted to the Lord. She was an inspiration to me. I said, well, then that's who she's with. She was just loaned to you. She belonged to God. God's taking good care of her until you see her again. If you're going. Oh, I'm going, he said. I said, Okay. I said, so instead of blaming God for taking your wife, who already belonged to him, he just loaned to you, why don't you put your arm around other people and say, I understand you lost your wife. I understand you lost your husband. I understand how you feel. And I can help you get through this. Because I get it. Wow, he said. I'm looking at this all wrong. I said, well, could be better, couldn't it? Yes, sir, it surely could. I know what I need to do now. Let me say this to all of you. If you live long enough, you're going to be knocked down. But you don't have to be knocked out. You can blame God for all the stuff that happens to you, or you can take the very same hand that you're shaking at God and reach out to other people and say, let me help you. I've been here, and I will help you get through this. And when you do, then you'll know why you went through that. Or you can be bitter and angry. And that's the difference. Bitter better. Let me suggest that's a word for somebody in here. Maybe there's several somebodies. Isn't it time you moved on? 
Isn't it time you decided to focus on others and not yourself? I had to get in my truck to figure this out. I hope you don't. When the truck hit me, I was standing at the gates of heaven just like that. I didn't go down a long tunnel and when the bright light at the end of the tunnel. I didn't have a near-death experience when you're dead an hour and a half. You're not nearly dead. I was there. I took my last breath on the bridge. I took my next breath at the gates of heaven. It, it's that picture. It's from the movie. Now, let me give you a caveat here. <laughs> the people in heaven don't wear street clothes. <laughs> <laughs> when I got the preview of this, and I wasn't on the set when they were doing the CG, they were doing the computer-generated uh, effects. These are real people, but everything behind them is not. Uh, they did it this way. Well, these are real people, so they're in, they're in outfits. They're in costumes, not their own, supplied. And um, so they couldn't do it, they couldn't do it over again. Um, so we're wearing long, magnificent, brilliant robes in heaven. Really glorious robes. But this is what I saw. I mean, I, I was on the bridge and I got run over by a truck and then I'm standing at this. I'm standing in front of all this group of people at the gates of heaven. And I'm surrounded by these people. And they were, they were people I knew. I didn't see anybody. I didn't know here that hadn't preceded me there. Now, there are a lot of other people, perhaps millions, but they're inside. They didn't come out to greet me. These people did. I don't believe you sneak up on heaven. I think everybody up there knows who's coming. The Bible's very clear about this. When somebody gives their heart to Jesus, someone makes a reservation in heaven, your name is inscribed in a registration book up there called the Lamb's Book of Life. You can read Revelation. You'll find this out. The Lamb's Book of Life. I mean, I'm staying at a hotel when the first thing you walk, walk in, the first thing they ask you is, did you have a reservation? Otherwise, there may not be room for you. Well, I did have a reservation, so there was. So heaven works the same way in that respect. You want your name in the registration book up there. And the Bible says every time somebody makes the decision, they have a glorious celebration in heaven. They sing your name. They're happy you're coming. Everybody knows. So these people knew I was coming. They came out to meet me at the gates. People don't miss you in heaven. They expect you. There's no time in heaven. It's eternal. It goes on forever and ever and ever and ever. So even though this happened to me 27 years ago and I was there at the gates of heaven, those people are still there. You say, oh my goodness, they're still there. No, no, there's no time in heaven. So, so the people who, who precede us in heaven will just pivot and we'll be right behind them in a heavenly sense. You may live for decades after their passing, but there are no decades in heaven. No hours, no minutes, no years, no clocks. It's eternal. So these people were expecting me. Some of them had been gone a long time in an earthly sense. The first person I saw was my grandfather. I was very close to him. I told you about my dad. My grandfather was a carpenter by trade. Well, he'd been a welder during the World War II on destroyers for the Navy. He was a lumberjack before that during the Depression for a dollar a day. He, he poverty... Well, he went to work when he was seven years old so he could eat and never really went to school. He couldn't read or write. I thought he was a genius because he could take lumber and nails and build places like this, and I saw him do it with my own eyes. I adored him. I wanted to be like him, and I'm still trying to be like him. I loved him very much. And one night, he died. He just sat on the bed, fell over, and died. I arrived at the house. I, I rode with him in the ambulance. I was... Standing outside the door when the doctor came out and said, I'm sorry, I did everything I could, but I lost him. The doctor was a good friend of his, and the doctor was crying. I said, I'm so sorry you lost a good friend tonight. He said, I sure did lose a good friend tonight. I had to call home and tell everybody that he was gone. 
Last time I saw him, he was in a casket in the church at his funeral. He did not look good. Now I'm standing at the gates of heaven and there he is to greet me. Right in the center, he's the first person I really saw. And he looked really, really good. If you want to look really, really good, heaven is where you want to be. Now, here on earth, he was missing three fingers on one hand and two on the other. All those industrial things he worked around, very dangerous jobs. But he extended his hands to me and he said this, Welcome home, Donnie. That's what he called me here on earth. It was a language I've never heard before, but fully understood. I didn't have to learn it. It's heaven. It's God talking. And so uh, he extends his hands to me. And I looked down at the hands that used to hold me when I was a little boy, and all of his fingers were there. I had never seen them before. He was perfect. So shall we all be perfect. And I was with him again. Standing right beside him was my great-grandmother, Hattie. She was a victim of osteoporosis on earth. She walked like this. She couldn't stand up straight. She was slumped over. She wasn't missing fingers like my grandfather was. She was missing teeth. She had no teeth. Well, she had some teeth that she referred to as store-bought teeth. They were, they were dentures. False teeth. She did not like them, apparently. She did not wear them often. And I mean, she did not wear them often. The only time I knew my grandmother would still put her teeth in was when she went to church on Sunday mornings. She would wear her teeth to church, and as soon as she got home, she'd take them out and put them in a glass of water beside the sink in the kitchen. Some of you know what I'm talking about. When we were little boys, and we didn't have anything to do, sometimes we'd just sneak in the kitchen and stare at Grandma's teeth, which, which were always smiling back at us. My great-grandmother, Hattie, met me at the gates of heaven. She was a good six inches taller there because she was no longer slumped over. And when she saw me, she was expecting me, she smiled at me. And it was the first time I ever saw her real smile. She was perfect. So shall we all be. Just the way God wanted us to be when he made us in the first place. Before life has taken its toll on us. I mean, I look like I fell in a hay baler from the neck down. I have so many scars on me, so many suture marks, so many needle marks. I mean, it's really hideous. I didn't have a scratch on me in heaven. There's only one person in heaven with scars, and that's Jesus, to remind the rest of us of how we got there. But you're not going to have any on you. You're going to look good. All up and down the line, there were teachers and aunts and uncles, people I had known in this life who preceded me in death. Over on the side were two boys that I went to high school with, Mike and Barry. Mike and Barry were both killed in tragic accidents in our senior year in high school. I had never seen an 18-year-old in a casket. We didn't know what to do. We didn't know what to say. I can't tell you or exaggerate the emotion it had on us when we saw our friend. But now I'm at the gates of heaven. Both of them there are there to meet me, Mike and Barry. There's no age in heaven, so they weren't just 18 and no longer was my grandmother 80. But you know what occurred to me? They were all ready to go when the time came. Remember what Jesus said? I go to prepare a place for you. And let me say this to your face tonight. You need to be prepared for the place. These people were there because they were ready. They weren't planning to die that day, but who is? 
Mike wasn't planning to be run over by a truck on his way home from a hunting trip. Barry wasn't expected to be drowned when he fell out of the boat, when he hit a limb, a low-hanging limb. 18! My grandmother wasn't planning on having a stroke when she was 80 either. But she was ready. They'd all given their hearts to Jesus at some point in their life. So they were prepared. Heaven's prepared place for prepared people. The other thing they had in common just blew my mind. It still does. Everybody who met me at the gates of heaven helped me get there. These were all the people that played a role in my spiritual life. These are the people who took me to church when I didn't have any other way to go. These are the people who gave me my Bible, the first one I ever had, and subsequent Bibles after that, because I didn't have any money to buy one. These are people who lived a Christian life in front of me so I knew what one was. They were my living witnesses. And so when I got hit by the truck and I'm standing at the gates of heaven right in front of them, I'm mindful of the fact that these people helped me get there. And when I came back from heaven, the question I brought back with me is, who are you going to greet? That's what we should be doing in Illinois. That's why we're all here. I think we've got a lot of work to do. At school, at work, in our neighborhoods, among our families and friends. On our street where we live, you and I both know you've got people you love in this life that you're not sure is going to heaven at all. Bring them to church tomorrow. Tell them about Jesus. Live a faithful Christian life in front of them so they know what one, one is. And then one day, we'll see them at the gate. Either you'll be waiting for them or they'll be waiting for you. Isn't that awesome? Over their head is a magnificent gate. It looks like the inside of an oyster. It really is a gate made of pearl. It was iridescent. It was brilliant. I thought it was a living gate, but really it was the light reflecting off the gate. I'm panning down from that magnificent, very ornate gate to a small entrance, frankly. Just really kind of big enough for one person at a time because that's how we go in. And I'm passing these people who greet me and I'm going through colors I've never seen. I'm smelling aromas I've never smelled before. Heaven is a sensory explosion. Nothing here is comparable to heaven. Well, I'm just surrounded by all this and I'm surrounded by angels. They're the ones who bear us up in the first place. One was in the car with me. You can read about that in the book. It, I held a hand on one in the car, but now I'm amongst them. I mean, they're all above me hovering and I can not only hear their voices as they were praising God, I could hear their wings. Some have Two wings, some have six. What a precious sound it was to hear the wings of angels. And I'm moving forward now and I'm moving through music. If you like music, you're going to have a special time in heaven because they have great music up there. All of it's glorifying God for he alone is worthy of our worship. Hallelujah, they're singing. Glory to God, they're singing. Worthy is the Lamb, praise the Lord. But the stunning thing about all these songs is that they're all at the same time and there's no chaos. Because they all fit together. They're all symbiotic. You can distinguish each one of them with your heavenly ears. And there's one song that transcends all of them. Holy, holy, holy. Because he is. And we're not. So I think a good question is, how did I get to heaven? I am not holy. I have witnesses. It was in a service like this. But it was on a Sunday morning. At the conclusion of the service, the pastor said, Who wants to go to heaven? We're taking reservations today. I've been going to Mike and Barry's Bible study class. 
They were Christians since they were like nine or 10 years old. I was 16. I've been listening to the preaching. I've been reading the Bible someone gave me. I would talk to the people who took me to church because I didn't have a way to go in, the, in their cars. And I, I was just gathering all this information. And I knew that if something were to happen to me, I would not go to heaven because I wasn't ready. So when the pastor said that, I was sitting on the third row. I left my seat and I went up after the service and said to him, I would like to go to heaven, pastor. And he said, son, this is the biggest decision you'll ever make. He was right. I didn't know that 22 years later on a lonely highway in East Texas, I was going to be run over by a truck and killed. Thank God I was ready. So I have to ask you tonight, are you ready? Are you sure? We are taking reservations tonight. A lot of prayer and effort went into making this happen. And I'll guarantee you the primary purpose of it is to make sure you are ready to go to heaven. Because in the moment we're going to leave church, I got killed on the way to church. That ought to tell you something. You have to be ready all the time. This is not something you can hit the pause button on later on and say, oh, okay, all that stuff I heard about Jesus, it must be true, so I, I buy it now. It doesn't work that way. It just doesn't. So I'm going in now. <laughs> and I could see this boulevard running down the middle of the city. It's made out of gold, but like you can see through it. The gold is so pure, it's transparent now. How is that possible? In heaven it is. God can make his streets out of whatever he wants. Uh, there are structures on both sides. I would call them mansions by any standard I've ever seen here. Just like driving down the main boulevard here of Carmine, you can see those houses. There's mansions. And, and it's just, they're magnificent. Everybody gets one. But what I wanted to do, in the center of the city high and lifted up, are thrones. And I could see the great God of all creation up there. I could see Jesus in the distance and not close, but I wanted to go, I wanted to go past the people who greeted me. I wanted to go down that golden boulevard. I wanted to climb this, this precipice. And I just wanted to fall at the feet of God Almighty and say, thank you for letting me come. Thank you. But I never got a chance. I did move past the angels and I did move through the music. And I did have my welcoming committee following me. And I am going through the pearl gate and... I'm entering the high gates 28, the walls 28 feet thick. So I'm coming inside and there is a tree of life and there is a river of life flowing. I mean, I'm just overwhelmed by how real it is. If you want to know the best thing about heaven is you're with God. Read Revelation 21. You'll find there on, in, in 5, 6, and 7, you'll see we're with God. It says it three times. Anytime the Bible says something three times, pay attention. You're with God, you're with God, you're with God, it says. That's the best thing. So I was with God. I wanted to be, this is my home there, not here. And I was so, I'm not worried about people down here because I knew they were coming. I'm in, I'm home. And suddenly it all stopped. I found myself in silence and darkness. And I wanted to cry out, what, what's going on? I, I just arrived, before I could even say that, out of this darkness, I heard one voice, not in front of me, it was behind me, it was that preacher in the car, singing What a Friend We Have in Jesus. And I was back here. And then I lay in the hospital bed every day. I didn't tell anybody about what happened to me for a long time. I didn't have the words for it. How would you describe heaven with earthly words? Very frustrating. So I just didn't talk about it. But I did lay there every day looking up because it's the only direction I could face. 
And here's the question I ask God every day, the same question you would have asked. God, why did you let me see that and take it away from me? And I have an answer tonight. It's so I could be in karma with you. I tell you to your face, heaven is real. And Jesus is the way. But it won't matter if you're not going. So we are taking reservations tonight. Some of you need a new normal. You are sick and tired of being sick and tired. Some of you need to make a reservation in heaven. Some of you need to pray for somebody you're not sure is going to heaven. I believe specific prayers bring specific answers. You've got a husband or a wife or a mother or a father or some children or some neighbors or some co-workers, that favorite aunt or uncle of yours. You've got people you love very much here and you're not sure they're going to heaven at all. Why don't you pray for them tonight and pray like this. God, help me help them know you. Why not a revival in here? Why not now? I believe God answers prayer. I believe God is still in the miracle business. I believe we need to turn the page. And I believe heaven is a real place. And Jesus is preparing it. Who better than a carpenter king to build us a better place? right now, do you know if you would go to heaven? If you were standing at the gates and the angel asked you, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? Do you know the answer? There is only one answer. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Jesus is the doorway to heaven. Acts 2.21 says it shall be that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Because if thou shalt confess with thy mouth Jesus is Lord and shall believe in thy heart that God raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. That's Romans 10.9. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness. And with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. That's the way. That's the road map to get out of any situation that you're in. And that's to confess Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And you can do that. Anybody can do that. There might be somebody right now listening to this. And they might be ready right now to find their way out of this darkness that they're in. Out of this pit. And if they'll just... Pray a little simple prayer right now with me. 
God is going to save you. Just say, Heavenly Father, I invite Jesus Christ into my life as my Lord, as my Savior. I believe Jesus died for my sins. His blood was shed so that I could be forgiven. And I believe that he has been raised from the dead. I surrender my life to you, Jesus. And I accept you as my Lord from this moment forward. I receive the forgiveness of sin through your shed blood, Jesus. Take out my old heart. Lord, give me a new heart, a new spirit, a new life. And I will follow you with your help, by your grace, all the days of my life. In Jesus' name, amen. enjoyed today's program and if you did we encourage you to pass it on and share it with somebody that you love and we want to hear from you so give us a call here at rig ministries at 618-383-2107 and remember this friends jesus loves you and we do too and this is chaplain gary rayburn and we'll talk at you later there's been a change i'm not the man i used to be and i love to tell everybody happened to me I felt so ashamed when I thought of my past so I called his name his chance would it be my last I saw Jesus hanging on that tree I lifted up my heart from down on my knees day I met Jesus, foot of the cross, broken hearted and lonesome, so long I had been lost. And I saw Jesus hanging on that tree, I lifted up my heart from down on my knees. day I met Jesus, foot of the cross, broken hearted and lonesome, as long I had been lost, I left a lifetime 
of misery. 